In this episode, you will hear from a very special guest. I'm joined by Sue Ellen Allen. She's the founder and executive director of Reinventing Reentry. She's the author of The Slumber Party from Hell, a memoir about prison life. The book received the 2009 Dawson Prize in memoir from the Prison Writing Contest for Penn American Center. We dedicate this show to Sue Ellen Allen and her work on prison reform and reentry. Sue Ellen is in hospice care right now, and we were able to tape with her in late December, shortly before Christmas. We begin this episode with our conversation. I first met Sue Ellen Allen in 2014 in doing research for me, a resourceful research assistant came across an op-ed that Sue Ellen had published. It described her time in a women's prison in Arizona and the harsh conditions under which she survived breast cancer. Memorable was how she described having her breast chopped off while shackled and chained. That's the way she described it. I knew then that I wanted to meet her. We became friends. We've been a lot of places together, haven't we, girlfriend? We have been a lot of places together. Yes, we have. From Washington, D.C., up at the nation's capital. From the press club, from the press club in Washington to the White House to the, uh, you you name it, we've been there together. We have been there together. (laughs) So you did travel so much. I mean, you became a teacher. You graduated from the University of Texas. (laughs) Many people who would see images of you now, they would say that that's the epitome of, of, at a certain point, what defined an image of a Republican woman, the pearls, (laughs) the beautifully coiffed hair from texas yep that's right but there's there's been a journey and at a certain point in terms of what led to your incarceration before you were incarcerated um your mother decided that maybe something else should happen What, what did your mother decide well my mother uh we were we are you talking about when we were indicted I'm talking about before, yeah, exactly. And your mother said, "I can do one thing or the other. We can either." I, I can, I can, yes, I can, um, I can pay for lawyers' fees, or I can, we can go and live quietly in Europe somewhere. But we can't do both. And David and I had been indicted for, uh, for securities fraud. And I thought, you know, I was. I couldn't stop shaking, Michelle, you're a lawyer, you know how that is. I couldn't stop shaking and I couldn't sleep and I couldn't eat and I'd lost about 25 pounds and 20 pounds maybe and uh, every woman's dream, but not that way. Uh, and I, I just thought if I, could just lay, if I could just sleep for just a little bit, maybe four or five months, we could come back and we could fight this thing. Mother didn't want to do that. Mother wanted to leave and be gone. And so, uh, so we did, we, we, uh, we went to Portugal, mm-hmm. David and my mother and I, and you haven't lived until you have been on the lamb with your 85 year old mother <laughs> and um, her 14 pieces of luggage and her little uh, portable sewing machine that she'd had since 1948. And <laughs> no, that's not true. It was 1950. Uh-huh. And uh, we had that little sewing machine that she, we, she took everywhere because my mother was a beautiful seamstress. She knew she knew how to make anything. And so we decided at that point in our life, we were going to go live in Portugal. And that was uh, in 19, no, that was 2000. 
no, it was 1990. Well, it doesn't matter. Right. But um, who cares what the time right. is? We left, we left the country. And I thought, well, if you just sleep, then I could just sleep. Right. We would come back and it would be all right. But it wasn't all right. It wasn't all right. And you you and your husband, David, you, you turned yourselves in. Yeah, we and, did. Yeah. And came back to the United States. And then this is when another phase in your life where your life really changed. What was that experience like um, being incarcerated and you had just been diagnosed with breast cancer? <laughs> um, the breast cancer was a sort of a shock. I, I jogged three miles a day for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. It seemed like it forever, but um, it, who knows? I never smoked. I drank minimally. I was a cheap drunk, I always said, because I couldn't handle it. And um, I just uh, was very, very surprised to find myself suddenly as a privileged white woman, like back to that, in Joe Arpaio's jail. I mean, heavens, I never even thought about something like that. So what was that experience like? If you could tell us a bit about um, making that decision, going through that surgery while incarcerated, what was that like? And how did the women respond to you to try to help you out? You know, Michelle, that um, you, when you lose your when you lose your hair, I don't know if you know how many billions of dollars it is in in uh, hair care products that we have in America, but it's billions and billions of dollars in hair care projects that we have. And so, when you think about losing your hair, this is a pretty big momentous thing except I have to just skip back here, ladies and gentlemen, if you could see both of us, neither one of us has a head full of hair. Michelle, because she is a tall six foot black goddess who can go without hair and looks fabulous. And me, because I'm a little old short white lady who has shaved her head since she got it, lost it for, um, you know, for uh, breast cancer. But here's the thing, you lose your hair and you lose your breast and who are you? I didn't know who I was anymore. I thought I've lost my hair. I've lost my breast. What's, what's left of me? Mm -hmm. And I found out and I, oh, and most importantly, I'd lost my freedom, yeah. my freedom. Yeah. And I found out through losing your freedom and losing your breast and losing everything, your hair, you're still you. Mm -hmm. You're still you. Did the women, did the women that you were incarcerated with, did they help you understand you're still you? What did they do to try to help you out? Or did you find support? Because, you know, again, you came from this Texas background with a mother and father who took you around the world and whatnot. And now here you are in Sheriff Arpaio's prison in Arizona. What were you expecting of the other incarcerated women? And what was the reality? Oh, Michelle, I didn't have any expectations whatsoever. I, I, uh, I didn't know what to expect. I honestly had no idea what to expect. And uh, what, what I found was uh, women who had lost everything still managed to be the most generous people I have ever known in my life, ever. Mm -hmm. They were extraordinary women, and they still are. The women that are in prison are extraordinary women. They have been through more violence than I could ever imagine in my life. They've been through more abuse. They have uh, 
you know, they're, they're just extraordinary. And at some point when, because this is going to be, I don't know if this is going to be on zoom or what it's going to be, but I'll get the pictures for you because I do have the pictures of, uh, of how we could, you know, show those pictures of the, the pillow. Yes. The, the pillow story. And because it's an extraordinary story. Well, what is, what is the pillow story? So you, you had, the operation and the path to the operation, when I first read about it, before I even knew you, but had been sent this article by one of my students was stunning to me because we were researching and tracking cases of women who were shackled during their pregnancy and delivery, uh, which was at that point now made illegal in federal uh, prisons and jails, but was still happening and was happening at the state level. And so this student who came across, Allie Whelan, who's wonderful, give a shout out to her, who came across this article, sent this to me and said, Professor Goodwin, you ought to see this. And right after reading that article, I said, let's get her contact information. I, I need to talk with Sue Ellen Allen. So, so tell us about that, Sue Ellen, the shackling experience and the pillow. Well, um, I went, I've got, I wish I could share my screen because I have it on my screen, but I don't know how to do that. That's uh, all right, we'll get a photo. And um, I, uh, when I had my mastectomy, I came back from the prison, I mean, back from the, the, uh, the, the hospital I came back from the hospital and um, the, the, uh, there was an order at the jail in the medical department saying, do not ever uh, cuff this, cuff or shackle this woman's right arm because she's at high risk of lymphedema. They didn't know what lymphedema was, but it means I've lost 28 lymph nodes on this side on my right arm and I could get lymphedema when your arm swells up like an elephant mm -hmm. and it never goes away. Right. And the pain is pretty extraordinary. Right. Um, and so I, I went through that and I, uh, they refused to not listen. They, they insisted on shackling. And I was in the middle of it. It was the middle of the like two, two or three o'clock in the morning. And they were handcuffing me and shackling me to go back to the, to the, uh, to the jail. Where was I going? I was going to court mm -hmm. and, um, so they were they were shackling three to do uh, you get out in the in the hallway to go onto the bus to go down to the courthouse from the jail and they lay line you up three women to a, a thing and they shackle and handcuff you and i gave him my permit and i said uh please this is my permit not to shackle my right arm and he shoved it back in my face and he said you forged that I had the most extraordinary expression on my face. I, 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 I mean, I'm not speechless very much, but I was pretty speechless. I said, I, I, I didn't even have a pen. How could I forge such a thing? Well, I couldn't, but he could or anybody could. And uh, they, they, I didn't forge it. And it was with a red pen, by the way, that they said I had forged it. Right. It's not, it's not even possible. Right. But they refused to listen and so that as a tear was running down my face he was grabbing my wrist and really hard and i said you could be gentle and he said i am being gentle you're not lying on the ground bleeding wow. and it didn't say it in quite that nice a tone i mean it was really uh harsh right. and i the tears just were coming down my eyes and uh uh i 
I just couldn't believe a human being could think that way, you know, but that's not, but Michelle, that's not, um, that's an example of systemic racism. Yeah. That's what it is. He didn't see me as a, Oh, an old white lady with breast cancer. Mm-hmm. He saw me as an inmate with a number yeah. and inmates with numbers are historically black and that's what I deserved. And so that's what he saw in the this shackling, the shackling right. and everything it was symbolic of the person that was there, right. uh, you know, being handcuffed and shackled. Right. And, and you wrote about the shackling while having your breast cut off. Yeah, what you talked about, the breast chopped off while being shackled and chained, as if you could run someplace, like the the indignity, like kind of extra legal shaming, stereotyping, stigmatizing, dehumanization that's located in doing that as if a woman whose breasts are being removed could possibly get up and run away. Uh, so let's just do this extra to let you know that we think so little. I don't know who thinks of stuff like that. I mean, I really don't. It's the same thing with uh, shackling with women with um, um, when they're on maternity, when they're getting ready to have their baby. Yeah. And they're, oh, well, let's shackle them. And uh, because, you know, they might want, excuse me, I've just got to have yeah. a little water here. Yeah, um, they've just got it. We've got to, you know, humiliate them more because they're going to have a baby here, and sure, they can run somewhere. Exactly. And when you got back then for recovery, there are certain protocols, um, and this is important because this connects to how you met Gina, and founded Gina's team, and even the reentry work that you do now. Because when you got back then to the jail to prison there was a protocol, a health protocol that was supposed to be followed. What was supposed to be done in your case? No shackling, no. And and they wanted a pillow to cushion my arm yeah. because they had to have it to protect my arm from lymphedema. Yeah. Well, no pillows allowed. That order was denied uh, to the to the medical department. They The sheriff said, no, they, they were not gonna let me, I couldn't have a pillow. But the after women stage left, three breast cancer after stage three B breast cancer and a mastectomy, radical That's mastectomy, right? And uh, the women left my cell and came back about three hours later, and they said, "Close your eyes, Sue Ellen, and hold out your hands." And I did, and when I did, I felt the softest, most incredible thing, and I opened my eyes, and it was a pillow, and I thought, "What in the world?" And I'm looking at this pillow that is. It's if you look at it and you see it, you realize it's made out of um, maternity cotex, mm-hmm. the, the cotex that women are issued in the jail or in a maybe a hospital. I don't know. Now, at this time in our conversation, we needed to take a little bit of a break because a nurse had come in to provide medication for Sue Ellen and being as feisty as she is, she was also reaching for her computer because she wanted to make sure that I had an image of the pillow. Now, I had seen the pillow up close and in person as Sue Ellen knew. I'd seen it in her apartment and we had taken it together when we visited juvenile detention centers that housed girls and also at the prison where Sue Ellen had been incarcerated. The pillow itself reflected something very special for Sue Ellen and of course for the women who had made it. It was a sign of love and respect and care. And for the women who made it, it was a sense of solidarity that even if there is 
medical neglect behind bars and women are denied what it is that they need, that these women would stick together. And so let's return to the conversation that I had with Sue Ellen. You see, they, these women, um, they, they gave up their, their hard pressed issue, what they were given for periods and they put them all together and they took one of these pads and they shredded it. And so they shredded it so they would have these like ribbons. And then they wove the pads together into this woven looking little paddy pillow thing. It's and lovely. then they, they took their, their golf pencil, their utility functional golf pencil that they were allowed to write letters with. I still have a little, little uh, callus on my finger 10 years later from, no, it's been 20 years later from writing with a golf pencil. And uh, they wove these little ribbons in and out to keep the, the uh, pillows sturdy, to keep it from falling apart, shredding, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then they tied the little little bows at all the corners so that it would it would stay together. And um, it's a very fragile, it's, it's delicate lovely. thing. It, it's delicate, but it, it's absolutely lovely. And yeah, and one wonders, Sue Ellen, with the way in which they made this so beautifully. What well, I said at the darkest time, at, I said at the darkest time of my life, the, the drug addicts and the murderers and the thieves looked after me. And I will never forget, um, you know, I'm one of them. I'm a sister in, in orange. And um, I, I can never forget these women. And they fringed it, they fringed it to give it that designer look, but they were not designers, you know, in their own right. I mean, they were, they were designers <laughs> in their own right, different kind of designer. But I also wonder, what's interesting is the, the polar opposite. So on one hand, you had a system that wanted to dehumanize you. I mean, you were already paying the, the social price. The social price was supposed to be you losing your freedom. But on yeah. top of it, the extra legal was we will shackle you. We will keep you in a holding cell with roaches and mice running throughout, and you don't even know when the operation is going to take place. We will not allow anybody to be there to provide support for you. These are all of the extra legal ways, unnecessarily, because you're already locked up. You're already away from society and everything. But here's the extra legal things that we're going to do to you to really stick it to you. And yet, on the other hand, here it is that you have these women who take what for them is a precious resource, and they transform it not just to anything that's just utilitarian, right? Because they could have just bunched it together and here's something for you to put your arm on, you know, lady. But instead, they saw you. You hadn't been there for years with them. You had just gotten there. And somehow right away, these women who, as you say, the murderers, the drug addicts, you know, the, the, the sex workers, were like, we see you. We recognize your humanity. And we will make this pretty for you. Yeah. To That's help exactly you right. That's exactly right. And how extraordinary is that? They, at the darkest time of their life as well, they found a way to be loving and generous in ways that um, often privileged white women don't even associate with such a thing. Exactly. Like, and had you had any prior experience with a population like this, the women yeah. who actually came to your aid, had you... So they even saw you, like these black and brown women and other women of various life experiences, even though you were the redhead with pearls kind of background of a woman, they said, you know what? We see the humanity in you. She's one of us. She's one of us. 
they they welcomed me in and made me part of them and I will never forget that. So who who was Gina? Because you you know how we found each other and began working together before working together on reinventing reentry we were working together at Gina's team. Um, who was Gina in your life? Gina was a she was one of my first cellmates. She wasn't my first, but she was one of my first. This darling young girl, 25 years old, and um, she started walking the track with me. And I thought, why is she 25 want to spend time with me uh, at such an age? I just didn't understand it. So Gina began walking track with you and you wondered, why is this 25 year old trying to hang out with me? How old were you at that time, Sue? I was 57. You were 57. And um, I thought, what in the world is she wanting to hang out with me? And I said, you know, I asked her that. And she said, I could learn a lot from you, Sue Ellen. And I thought, wow. She said, do you mind? I said, no. I said, I probably could learn a lot from you too. <laughs> and you grew uh, close together. She became your cellmate. She became my cellmate and my caregiver And when I started going in for chemo. And I went in for chemo and then I went in for uh, radiation. Mm -hmm. And um, I was so sick, so sick. And um, just recently I started radiation again which is mm -hmm. interesting. So, yeah. uh, you yeah. know, it, 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 I've, I've ended up with the same disease that Gina in, had, that, that killed Gina in prison. Well, let's talk about that because in part that also brought us together, your story and Gina's story. What happened to Gina, Sue Ellen? Gina collapsed one day and um, that we took her to medical and medical said, they said, my head, she said, my head feels like it's gonna explode off my body. And they said, yeah, yeah, you've got migraines, come back in two weeks and if you're still sick, we'll believe you. And she, they wouldn't give her a blood test. They wouldn't, they wouldn't do anything for her. Two weeks later, we took her back cause she couldn't walk. She could hardly walk. And they said, they, she said, my ears and my gums are bleeding. And they said, well, you have gingivitis, brush your teeth and drink more water, mm -hmm. and, uh, but no blood test. And then finally in another uh, two weeks, and they, she said she'd now lost about 25 pounds, but maybe not 25, 15 pounds. And um, they, she said, I can't swallow jello. My throat feels like I was swallowing ground glass. Mm -hmm. And so they said, oh, well you have strep throat, then here's some antibiotics, but they wouldn't give her any blood test. And her parents called and asked for a blood test and they wouldn't give it to her either. And uh, so she was, she was really, really sick. I've never seen anybody in so much pain before. She was in excruciating pain. And it seems if I recall correctly that in the advocacy on her behalf, it wasn't well received. You know, what was the atmosphere when you tried to advocate for her? Wasn't it kind of threats to you and other women just in trying to advocate for Gina? Yeah, it was it was insulting uh, that we were trying to help her and uh, they weren't allowing it in any way. So yeah, it was what, it was the same same what was same song different verse. Right, right, you know. right. And, and and what happened on the day in which she finally got some care? What 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 happened? Well, they they finally took her to the hospital, and her parents they the doctors were furious at her parents. And they said, what is wrong with your daughter? Why hasn't she gotten a blood test? 
her, they, they did blood tests and her white blood count was 300,000 and her red blood count was zero. Mm -hmm. She was, she had myeloid leukemia. Look at and that. That they, had been undiagnosed. Because undiagnosed leukemia. All that her body was shutting down, Michelle. Her body was shutting down. This is America. This is a first world country. This is not a third world country. And so Gina, within just a matter of days, what happened after finding went into a coma and she was dead in 36 hours? Look at that. So she was dead within 36 hours. This was a 25 year old girl who shouldn't by all, she should be sitting here where I am, you know, not where I am actually, but she should be, you know, she should be alive. Mm -hmm. And Gina had, she had every reason to live and every, every purpose to live. And when they got, when they came back and told us that she had died of leukemia, I was speechless. And I, I, pan, I painstakingly wrote every single thing that had happened down that I could think of. It was a 10 page two front, uh, front and back letter that I had handwritten. By then I had a big pen, not a, not a little golf pencil. And, um, I was so afraid that they would find, go through my mail and find it that I hand copied it over again. So two 20 page mm -hmm. documents. And, um, but the, I hid one of them really carefully. And the other one I, I sent out in the mail, hoping that it would get to her parents. And it did get to her parents and they eventually did sue the state and they won their, their, won their lawsuit, uh -huh. which was a, a great blessing, but it, didn't save Gina's life. No, it didn't save her life and it didn't save her kid's life because oh. as I'll share with the audience, I was giving a talk some uh, time later, by this point, you and I had already become sisters. We had already become fast, fast friends and working together on Gina's team, which you co-founded uh, when you released. Um, you co-founded this organization to help lift up girls and women uh, who were incarcerated and formerly incarcerated. And I was giving a talk at Northeastern Law School. In fact, uh, I was scheduled to give a talk and I got a call from you at about two in the morning. And Sue Allen, do you remember what you were calling to tell me? I had just found out that Gina's oldest daughter had killed herself, had shot herself. Yeah, and it was absolutely- and, that, and that's very unusual for a, 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 a woman to kill herself uh, with a gun. Yes. Number one. Number two, that she was actually had possession of a gun, but in Arizona, you can have a gun, which is a whole other story. Mm -hmm. And um, that she was only 19. Only 19. And the part of that that wasn't unusual, though, was the stress and the horror of what incarceration does to the children of incarcerated parents. Yeah. Right. Um, that's exactly right. It was, I mean, she was the oldest. There was a brother, there's a brother who's older. And then, and then the daughter, the younger, then the sibling, and then the, another daughter, and then another uh, son. The other three are still alive. And so I won't mention any names, but right. out of respect for them. But what an awful thing for them to go through. And listening to their stories is quite, they're heroic young people. Tell us about reinventing reentry and why you founded this organization. Well, you know, some of us are a little slower on the uptick than others. And I realized that changing the, trying to go into the prisons and bringing education into the prisons is a worthwhile and worthy cause, but it's like trying to empty the ocean with a slotted spoon. 
because it's one human being at a time, which is not, which is priceless. Every human being is priceless, but we need to make the change at the, at the cellular level in our policies and in our heart changing, dare I say, changing hearts and minds. But yes, it's changing the hearts and minds of the ordinary person who doesn't understand, like me, the privileged white lady who didn't understand what it's like to be in, inside. Yes. And who are these people and why do they deserve anything? Why did they deserve education? Why did they deserve medical care? Why did Gina deserve it? Why did any of these things? I had to go there to find out the answers. You can't get licensed. You can't. Oh, there are 40. If you look at the national, I'll, ha, I'll send you this information, Michelle, because there are 40, over 42,000 legal collateral consequences uh, if you want to job in United States of America. There are 42,000 collateral consequences. So in other words, 42,000 laws that prevent you from, I can't, uh, I can't have a, a business that has gumball machines in it because it's you going can't. out crazy. No. no. You, so, so let's repeat that for an audience that has no, so how old are you, Sue Ellen? I'm sorry. Like, I'm, okay. No, I'm happy to tell my age. All right. So Sue Ellen, how old are you? I'm 75. 75. And Sue Ellen, if you wanted to open up a business, you yep. could not have what at your business? I couldn't have a gumball machine. You can't even make that up. No, I can't make that up. <laughs> Who makes that stuff up? You know? <laughs> right? And, and, or as, as, our, as our mutual friend Sandra Bernard says, you can't make this shit up. That's <laughs> exactly, exactly. Loved having her on the show. She was fabulous. So I'm glad that you're on the show. So, so those kinds of things that keep people back, what's the hope that we see coming forward though, Sue Ellen? Is there some form of a silver lining or things that are changing? What's, uh, what, what are we doing with- Well, there's some organizations out there that I think are pretty fabulous. One is actually started by a whole bunch of men and some of them went to prison and some of them own football uh, association leagues, you know? So the, the, the ones, the poor ones are getting together with the ones that aren't so poor to have um, Reform Alliance, for example. Reform Alliance is all about reforming and um, the, the incredible penalties that are these collateral consequences. You know, all these jobs that you can't get. They're trying to get the, the $500 bail reduced so that they'll be taken, so we won't have any more bail. Right. Uh, for, I mean, that poor kid in at Rikers Island was there for three years, yeah. three yeah. years. Yeah. And because he couldn't afford a $500 bond yes. and beaten uh, up and, and, and by inmates, by guards caught on video, the horrors that yeah. he experienced. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. they're doing a lot about, about it. Um, that's Meek Mill and Van Jones's group that really have put their life and soul behind it. Jessica Jackson from, uh, um, uh, Oh gosh, cut 50, hashtag cut 50. I have the utmost respect for them. Um, Shaq Sangura, who, uh, uh, did I get his name right? He knows that, he teases me because I'm always getting his name wrong. Um, but Shaka Sangura, yeah. he wrote an incredible book about what, uh, writing my wrongs, I think his book is, about writing his way out of prison, really. Yeah. And there's some amazing people that have served time inside that are outside now and really making a difference 
And that's, you know, Michelle, that's what this is all about, isn't it? It's about what happens to you when you, when you go inside and you hit the wall and the wall breaks you down and crumbles you. Do you put the pieces back together and do you keep going or do you, or do you lose? Do you win or do you lose? And I don't think it's saying you win because you go back inside to help other people. It's people like Shock and people like Meek and people like you and me. I mean, you never committed a crime, but anyway, people like us who have a way to get back inside that uh, gives you, gives hope to those that we left behind. And I'm putting you in that category. Guests and listeners, that is it for this very special episode dedicated to Sue Ellen Allen of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. I want to thank Sue Ellen for joining me and being part of this very important and critical conversation. And to our listeners, I thank you for tuning in for the full story. I hope that you'll join us again for our next episode as we will be reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is with really special guests as we continue to think about dismantling cultures of sexual violence, mass incarceration, and issues that are important to you. And for more information about what we discussed on this episode, please head to MsMagazine.com. And if you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America, being unbought and unbossed and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to visit us at Apple Podcast. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. Rate and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Please let us know what you think about our show, and please support independent feminist media. And if you want to reach us to recommend guests for our show or topics that you want to lift up, write to us at ontheissues at mismagazine.com. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Kathy Spiller and Michelle Goodwin are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Maddie Ponce, Roxy Zoll, and Mariah Lindsay. We thank Oliver Hogg for research and digital assistance. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Marsh Allen, and music by Chris J. Lee. We also want to thank the Women's Prison Association. Stephanie Wilner provides executive assistance. <laughs>